1 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 1. Paul continues here. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of students that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very little thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one another or against one another, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You may be seated. It was because of the condition of this church that Paul writes this letter to the first Corinthians. As we've been seeing these last few weeks in our study, Paul had heard the report that the church was in a rather troubled condition, that rather than being a church that was growing and maturing in the faith, that in fact they were regressing, they were becoming more carnal, they were depending more upon the world and its values and allowing the world to have a greater influence upon them than they were having on the church. And so as Paul writes this letter, it is a correctional letter. He's, he's writing to correct them to get them to think again about what is really true compared to where their carnality had led them. In some ways, you could say he is giving them the one, two, threes, and the ABCs of what God's heart is for them as his children with regard to them who should be spiritual but rather are carnal. He has described three different kinds of people. He's talked about the natural man, that's the unbeliever who does not know God, and therefore has no ability to understand or grasp the spiritual things of God. They are spiritually dead. They are blind. They are deaf to the things of the Spirit. That's the condition of all the unbelievers we see in the world. They have no understanding of spiritual things. And when we see them doing what they do, it's because they don't have the Spirit of God. They have no understanding or ability to understand. Then Paul contrasts that with the spiritual man who receives the truth of the gospel, repents of his sin, turns to Christ as a savior. He is redeemed and forgiven of sin and he has a new, been given a new nature, a spiritual heart and mind capable of growing in the knowledge and wisdom of God. And as he matures in his faith, he becomes more and more uh, aware of the blessings and the riches that belong to him in Christ. But thirdly, as we've been dealing with the Corinthian church, he talks about the carnal Christian. He is a born-again believer who has been awakened to the things of God and the blessings of God, but for a variety of reasons, he is stunted in spiritual growth, and as a result, lives compromising lives, struggling with faith, always straggling the fence between that which is carnal, foolishness, and that which is spiritual according to the wisdom of God. And so you see these contrasts of people. The result of the carnal Christian, though, 
is as carnal Christians, they don't grow up to discover and experience the riches and the fullness that is theirs in Christ. They live their lives on this subpar, fruitless spiritual plane, robbed of the joy and the peace that accompanies spiritual growth. There is a peace that comes to your life. The more you grow in the knowledge of Christ, the more peace you actually achieve. In other words, you could say they have the keys to the treasure chest, but they don't open it. They kind of leave it shut. These carnal Christians, in my mind, are the most miserable kind of people. They're spiritually schizophrenic. They're double-minded with one mind that pulls them in this direction spiritually, the other carnally. And that you see this contrast between this and there's too much of the world to be happy in Jesus and too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. Well, that is the description of what's happening here at Corinth. And this is why Paul writes this letter. He wants to give them a, a fresh understanding, to be aware of their own egocentric interest as it relates to others and the problems that they're having. You see, they were measuring themselves and others according to the world's wisdom, according to the world's faulty values and standards, and it resulted in their pride, which provoked strife and conflict. There were factions among the believers. There were cliques and there were splits, bickering and quarreling. Some of it was over some of the silly things like who is your preferred teacher or your preferred pastor. And they were comparing and contrasting and saying, well, I like this teacher and I like that teacher. And it's like, well, yeah, but he's my teacher and he's really good, man. And so they were kind of going back this carnal things. We do the same thing today. Did you guys know that? Yeah, we do. I hear it. I mean, I hear it all the time. I, I, I see it. I do it. I mean, I have those who I think, well, man, yeah, but I listen to so-and-so. And we kind of have this kind of way of, of having a little spiritual snobbery about who we listen to. Well, that's what's going on with them. And what ends up happening with a carnal Christian is this. Instead of being a light that draws people to Jesus, they end up repelling people from Jesus because they don't ever get to see the real Jesus and the person. The thing that we're learning in our study is this, that Christian maturity is not automatic. It's not like we get saved and on the next day we become these spiritual giants. No, there is a process now. Being born again is just the beginning. It's just the start. It's just day one of what God now has for us as we learn to grow up and the knowledge of who he is and what he has for us as believers. You know, sadly, there's a lot of believers who think, well, I'm just saved. That's all I care about. Listen, I feel sad for you because there is so much more being saved, being born again. That's great. But listen, you're never going to discover the riches that belong to you until you grow up. And God wants his children to grow. You know, Galatians 5, Paul illustrates the inward battle between the flesh, the old person, and the spirit, this new nature between the old nature. He says, in fact, there's like a civil war that's going on within us. Do you guys aware of that? You should be. If you've been a believer for any period of time, you should know there's this inward conflict between your spirit or the Holy Spirit, and your flesh. This conflict goes on day in and day out. The flesh, the carnal, the old nature, and the new nature are a conflict. They will never find peace with each other. There will never be that. And only the true born-again believer understands this conflict. An unbeliever doesn't know it because they don't know Jesus at all. But we who know Jesus, we have that tension between us because we have the Spirit. In fact, the thing that I want you to see here is something I have said many times before. I want to say it again, and that is this. Your flesh will never be converted. 
Did you know that? Are you waiting for your flesh to change? Are you waiting for your flesh to be holy? It's never going to happen. That old man, that old nature of who we were is kicking. It's struggling to stay alive. It still wants his own way. He is still seeking his own fulfillment. But this flesh, your flesh, that carnal part of you, is never ever going to point you to Jesus or inspire your faith. If you think, well, man, I've been a believer all these years and I can't believe I still struggle with sin. Guess what? Your flesh at 85 is just as rotten as it was when you were 20. It's never going to desire the things of God. Believer, you have to pick that up. So you don't be surprised when you find yourselves thinking things foolishly, even at 85. But the truth is you cannot have it both ways. You cannot follow the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world at the same time. And you certainly can't expect anything good from it if you're trying to do it. You know, Paul wants them to understand that we are a building, he says. We are in the foundation of the building is Jesus Christ himself. And the most important thing about this building is that we're building on it. And the question he asks for us is what we're using to build with. Are we going to build it with our flesh? Or are we going to build it with the Spirit of God? Because one day God is going to expose and reveal everything for what it really is. That which is wood, hay, and stubble. And that which is gold. That which is silver and precious stones. And the point that we got to see here is that works of our flesh will never, can never produce anything of spiritual value that is pleasing to God. If you think you can do that, you're mistaken. Now as we move on here to chapter 4, and we see here that Paul's going to continue to talk about the importance of godly wisdom as it relates to those who lead the church. And he is saying this in regard to this conversation he's been having about those who appeal to one teacher over another teacher, him or Apollos or Cephas, and saying, I'm of him and I'm of them. So he says in verse 1 here, let a man regard us, speaking of himself and Apollos, in this manner, as servants of Christ and servants of the mysteries of God. Now in response to the carnal reasoning, he's saying, I want you to understand how God sees us. What God has called us to be in leadership, whether it's Paulos or whether it's Cephas or whether it's Ryan or whether it's Doug or Kevin, this is how I want you to see it. He says, but we are servants of Christ. Now that word servant there, huperitas, means minister. You know, it's the guy who is called the servant. And we don't, typically don't see that way. Sometimes we look at the minister and we think, oh my, there's the minister. There's the head honcho. There's the guy up front. I want to be a minister. I want to be in charge of everyone. And he says, no, really what we are is we are merely servants of Christ. And that term there really better is understood as you might think of an under rower. Those slaves who are on the under, who are lowest rank on the under galley of the ship who are rowing the boat. I don't know if you've ever seen those movies that depict this scene of a multitude of galley slaves. They're beneath the deck. They're sweating profusely rowing in syncopation with each other, slaves together, working as they move this large ship in a particular direction. The galley slave worked the hardest labor, but with the least appreciation. Actually, being an under rower was used at times to actually be a means of punishment. So if I was to punish you, 
And I, there, and I have to say this, there were times in my years of ministry, I thought, first I thought, I like the glamour of being the pastor. I thought, this is really good. And then I went through a time of, who would ever want to do this? And I realized you wouldn't do this unless God called you to do it. Because you, you couldn't be able to hand on to it. And we see ministers all the time that leave the ministry because they just realize this is not what they thought. They didn't like the idea of finding themselves in the underbelly of a ship rowing. They didn't like the idea. You see, it's not the kind of job that any normal person says, well, man, someday I want to be an under rower. I can't wait. You don't think about it that way. No one grows up with that ambition of being a galley slave. You know, sign me up. But really, what Paul is saying here is a great description of how we ought to be looking at those who minister and for those who are ministering, for those who are serving. Again, whether you're a pastor or a leader or a Sunday school teacher, we're under rowers. And we're simply working together, moving, the, moving our rows together, our oars together, according to the will of God. Let me ask you, how many of you want to be a minister? I mean, say, yeah, sign me up today. Each galley slave is but one of a multitude of other galley slaves equally assigned with an important task of rowing their own oar in sync and rhythm with other galley slaves in order that the ship keeps going in the right direction. And that is the picture of what Paul is really painting here. You know, that the ministry is like this. When you look at ministry, saying they're under rowers. They're galley slaves. We're not the captain of the ship. We're not even the first mate. No, all we are is here. We're here working together in sync to make the Lord glorified. We're here to bring him glory because Jesus is the captain of the ship. You see, when the ship finally does arrive at its destination, it is the captain who takes the honor and the credit for a successful journey. That's all. Those who work in the galley, they might not ever be appreciated. But because Paul is a minister called by God to do what he's doing, he can only do, he knows, what God has given him to do. That's all. And that's any of us can do. Ever, whatever God's given us to do, whether you think it's small, you think it's great, we can only do what he's given us to do or what he has shared with us to do. You know, Paul couldn't help but preach. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, Paul knew he was just a slave who was called to obedience to his master. I think of what Jesus has to say about this in Luke 17. We taught this not too long ago in our study in Luke. But he said, which of you, having a slave plowing and tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me with what while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So too, when you do all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We don't, we've only done that which we ought to have done. That's the attitude of the servant of God. We're not doing this for the appreciation of people. We're doing it to bring honor and obedience to the Lord. That's the attitude. And this is the biblical view of God's perspective of those who serve and the church, and those who minister. What Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't give thanks to those who serve us, but he reminds us that the slave is only doing what he's called to do in obedience. 
And that really all the praise and the glory. And I think today of all the superstars, the evangelists and the preachers we see on TV drawing attention to themselves, it's like they want you to look at them and think, man, look, I got special anointing. God has a special role for me. And he tells me things that he doesn't tell anybody else. And boy, you ought to follow me and give your money to me. You know, and it's all that kind of stuff. And you think, wow, that's ministry? Not from God's point of view. That is not ministry. Ministry is being a servant. It's not being there for people to serve you, but for you to serve them. And this is Paul's description here. A real minister understands this. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how clear the word is about these things. When you go through the New Testament, you shouldn't mix this up. I mean, it's no mistake. This is how God views ministry. You know, and then you have these self-acclaimed superstars, you know, who come to be served and, you know, they think, well, listen, I really should be given the finest homes and I should be given the finest cars and live at high end. After all, I mean, the people are here to serve me. No, that's not ministry. Paul says, we're merely servants of Christ, not masters of Christ. And I think of Jesus modeling this kind of leadership to his disciples, that he would leave his throne in glory and humble himself and come down here in human form and the likeness of men. And there he would take upon himself the death on a cross, even death on the cross. That's Jesus. That's the model. Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. It is not that way among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of, just the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the model that Jesus gave in service. That's what he said. We used to sing this song. If you want to be great in God's kingdom... Learn to be a servant of all. And I sang that last service. Nobody knew it. Is there anybody who knows it here? Thank you. Oh, man. That makes me feel better. I, I just thought, what a loser I am, or I'm really old, or whatever. Paul says, secondly, here, he says, we're not just ministers or servants, we're stewards of Christ. That word, oikonomos, there means you're a house manager. You're one who owns nothing for yourself, but you diligently work. Managing the affairs of the owner of the house. A steward is a caretaker. They are supervisors of the master's property, of his fields, of his vineyards, his finances, his food, and even of other servants. But he says that's who we are. We are caretakers. Simply caretakers of the mysteries of God. And again, when you see that word mystery there, what he's speaking, we saw it earlier a couple weeks ago, is that word mystery there, mysterion, simply means something that was once hidden, but is now revealed. It was hidden for a long time, but now God has revealed it to us who believe. It is no longer a mystery, this gospel message. And again, it was God's secret plan of redemption before the foundation of the earth was ever laid, but it was not known until after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul says, you know, well, Apollos and Myself, Apollos, and Cephas were slaves or stewards of God's mystery. We've been given the task of sharing and revealing the mysterious, the mysterious secrets of God to others so that they might also know the secret. You guys know this? We're all in on the secret. We all know the mystery. We know Jesus. In verse 2, he says, In this case, moreover, it is required of, students, of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Paul is saying this, Most importantly, 
the greatest task or responsibility of the steward is that they're found trustworthy and devoted completely to their master's business alone. The faithful steward is one who is trustworthy. He is dependable. He is honorable. He is obedient to his master's desires. You see, to be a faithful steward, God is not requiring brilliance or cleverness or creativity or charisma or popularity. That's not what he's looking for. What God is looking for is someone who he can entrust the word of God with as a steward who will have a full-hearted devotion to the Lord in his service. The aim is to please the master, not the people. Of course, this is one of the many lessons, too, that Jesus taught his disciples. In the parable of the talent in Matthew 25, he says, those who were found faithful stewards were five, were given five more talents. Those with two talents were given two talents and one with one. But he said of those who were faithful with what God had given him, he said, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the slave or the, or the steward that he entrusted one talent and had nothing to show for it, but went and buried it, Jesus said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap, that I did not sow or gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back in interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to one who has 10 talents. He said, there's a reward for your faithfulness. Just being faithful, whether you have two or whether you have five, just being faithful with what God has given you. This is really kind of a fundamental spiritual lesson. I hope you always hold on to it. Luke 12, 48. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom much they entrusted much, of him they will be asked all the more. In other words, you will give as God will give to you as you give as you're trustworthy of what is given to you. Every true minister can never do more or less than what God has given them the ability to do and the motivation to do according to his glory. Those are the ones God entrusts his ministry to. The spiritual leader in God's sight are those who are stewards or servants who possess a single devoted heart to his master alone. Paul says in verse three, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Now, in these next verses here, Paul is going to mention really three courts of judgment to consider. And the first one that he talks about is the courtroom of our judgment of others and what others think of us. He says, it's a very small little thing that I be examined or evaluated by you or by any human court. Now, that word examine here it means to be scrutinized or to be evaluated or interrogated. And he's saying, it really doesn't matter to me whether y'all, again, y'all, plural, speaking to the whole church, whether y'all like me or not, that's not the issue that I have. No, what it really is, is what God thinks of me. In fact, Philip's translation says it beautifully. He says, but as a matter of fact, it matters very little to me what you or any man thinks of me. I am not a people pleaser, I am not doing what I do to please you or for anyone else. This is the servant that God is looking for. You know, if the world's wisdom is foolishness to God, and we know that, we know that the, to us who are being saved, the world's foolishness is there everywhere around us. 
But Paul is not saying here he doesn't care or he cares less about what people think. No, really, he wants to be a witness, but he knows in order to be a good witness and a faithful witness, he has to be about what his father is calling him to be. He's a, he's a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. Now here again, people, he's addressing motivations. The reason, the driving forces behind what we do. When he ministers as a servant and a steward of God, he says, I'm not being motivated by my own ambition to please you. I'm not here to seek fame or a popularity or, or money or power or to please anyone. That is not my business. Every true minister of God needs this kind of heart. I'm not here to make a name for myself. I'm here to represent Jesus and point others to Jesus. And I really think as I was going through my study, as I was thinking about the crazy, insane day that you and I are living in. I mean, it is absolutely nuts. I mean, stupid is in the air. And it's flowing. And it's, I mean, it's everywhere you see it. And I think, oh, Lord. And I think, oh, God, if there's any hope for the church, raise up pastors. Raise up pastors who are motivated to serve God's interest more than they are serving the interest of men. God, raise them up. Because in my opinion, there's way too many vain teachers and pastors drawing attention to themselves rather than Christ. And when you get around it, run from it. Secondly, Paul talks about the courtroom of judgments made by our own conscience. He says, I do not even examine or evaluate myself. He's talking about self-examination here. Now, when he talks about the conscience, which you're going to see in the next verse, he's, he's speaking about that internal mechanism that God has given to all of us by which we can discern right and wrong. Now, we have the Holy Spirit for us as believers, but even in the world, people are given a conscience. They know that there's a right and a wrong. Now, they fight against that conscience. They can harden their conscience. They can kill their conscience, but they've been given a conscience. There's an inner thing within them that knows something is right and wrong. That's why in every nation around the world, even if they haven't known anything about the Bible or about the truth of God, they still feel guilty over things they do wrong. They're making sacrifices all over the world because they know something is wrong and something has to be appeased. People know that. But Paul says, even as a believer with a, a, a godly given conscience now, been sanctified conscience, I don't even examine myself. Now, Paul is not saying that we shouldn't examine ourselves, because later in the letter we're going to see, with regard to communion, he's going to say, but a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat and drink, or eat of the bread and drink the cup. He will say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? He's saying, listen, there comes a time you need to examine your life as far as you see where you're going toward God, but it's not a matter of you saying, I'm not the final standard, the final measurement of even myself. While we've been given this new nature in Christ, we still have this old nature that wars against the new nature, and sometimes... The old nature can do a good job deceiving the new nature. How many of you know can be deceived? Anybody going to raise their hand here? Can Christians be deceived? Hallelujah. Thank you. Of course. We get deceived all the time. 
Sometimes we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing, especially when it comes to motives. We don't know. Is my motive here pure? Is it really godly? Is this something that God really has for me? Or am I just kind of deceiving myself? And Paul is aware of that fact. Now, he knows the heart can be deceived, even when it comes to his own judgments. And because of that, he does not even allow himself to examine himself as far as his own measurement between him and God. We live in a sick world where people are trying to be led by their deceived consciences. You've heard the saying, well, let your conscience be your guide. Follow your heart. Do what is right. What you feel like, just do it. Paul says, I would vigorously argue against that kind of counsel. To follow after your own heart could lead you to a tremendous disaster. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Thank you. We know what it's like, right? We followed our heart. I've had my time when I let my conscience guide me. See, T Titus 1.15 says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, they don't see anything as pure before God. They cannot see what we see. The other problem is that we can be really short-sighted when we look at ourselves in contrast to others. Why? Because, I, to be honest with you, I can be pretty good at seeing the faults in other people. I can see things, and I can see sins in other people and kind of overlook it myself. So if you're wanting to know what sin you have, just ask me, I'll tell you. I'll be glad to tell you. We can be so short-sighted when it comes to looking at ourselves and saying, man, I, I can see that person's fault, but I certainly can't see it in myself. That's the problem. He says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. As far as I can tell my own conscience, I can't find anything that I have against myself. But even that does not justify me before God. I don't even evaluate or value my own opinion of myself. That's amazing. You see, he's not driven and he's not motivated by how others examine him or how he himself is examined. But this is the courtroom that matters. It's the third one. It's the courtroom of God's judgment and examination. Paul is saying the only judgment or examination that matters to me is how God evaluates me. It's how God examines me and what God sees in me. That's why in the book of Psalms 139, you know, he, he actually comes out and says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me, Lord, show me of my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He invites God, God, you search me. Because what matters more than anything in the world is not what you think of me or you think of me or I think of me. What matters more than anything is what God thinks about me. Were you guys getting that? It's like he wants you to understand and look at things. How does God see you? How does he evaluate you? And by the way, that is why, people, the Bible is so critically important for your spiritual growth. Some of you might have 10, 15 Bibles in your house, but I wonder, do you read them? It is the healthy Christian, the growing Christian who says, I need the Word of God. Why? Because it's His Word. And when you go into His Word, it doesn't just reveal to you the truth about who God is, but it reveals to you the truth about yourself. It's like looking to a mirror. And sometimes you look in the mirror, you go, oh, oh, not good. Oh, that's not good. 
And I know sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I'm just kind of reading along, something the Lord says to me in the scriptures, oh, wow, not real good. It's not looking good, Doug. You're not looking good today. You see ugly things in yourself. Well, that's because God intends the word to do that. That's part of growing. It's like allowing yourself to be examined by the truth of God's word so that he can speak to you about things that he desires to change in you. It's interesting that the compilation of the books of the Bible are called the canon, which means the measuring rod or the measuring stick. This is why I believe we have to kind of hang in there with the word of God. A, a growing Christian has to say, Lord, your word is there to teach me and instruct me that I might grow in the knowledge of who you were. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Bible is God's measuring rod by which we should be judged. I say this often, I hope you hear it again. Never judge the Bible against the standards of the culture. Always judge the culture against the eternal standards of God's holy Bible. Let the word be the teacher. When I dedicate a Bible to somebody and I give it to them, usually I say this, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. Be people of the word of God. Because it's God's word, it is the measurement by which we should measure ourselves. Truth must never be subjected to public opinion or personal likings or disliking. Nor should it ever be concerned about political correctness. That's not the measurement of truth. The one thing that every one of us who teach and have the ability to, to minister as God's servants is this. We know we have the solemn responsibility of teaching the word of God in its context and in the truth and the manner for which it's written. James says, let the teacher be aware that he'll be judged more strictly as a teacher and teaching. It's a sobering responsibility. I think of Paul when he's thinking of, of Timothy and even like right now as I'm getting ready to pass off the church to Ryan, I, I think of, of this very thing as Paul as he's realizing his end is coming and he writes to Timothy and he, and he says to Timothy, I want you to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. I want you to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience for the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Will turn away their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. He says, but you, I want you to be sober in all things. I want you to endure hardship. I want you to do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do this. He says in verse five, he says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who being bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, therefore, with regard to these motivations and the judgments we make, don't go on passing judgment before it's time with regard to anything else. As we learned in the last chapter, he's talking about that one day when everything will be brought to light. All of our works will be judged accordingly, whether things of the spirit or things of the flesh. And everything made of the flesh, of wood, hay, and straw, he says, is going to be burned up and consumed and smoke. Because God alone knows the thoughts and the intent of the heart. That's a very sobering truth. 
I've been so awakened to this truth the last couple of years is God knows why I do. He knows what I do and he knows why I do it. And God knows the intent of the heart. He knows the motivations behind what we do. And one day he's saying there's going to light, there's going to shine in the motivations and all the driving forces behind the things that we did. And the truth behind what we are doing is going to be revealed. Boy, I think, oh God, I want to have a right attitude. I want to do this for you. You see, we need to live in that light right now before we live in the light later. I think, God, I'd rather be scrutinized by you right now while I have a chance to change than wait till later when all I have to do is show nothing for myself. He says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, and so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other, instead of pitting one person against the other by whose ministry you think is greater. He says, For, for who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He says, I want to, you know, I, I used Paul and I used myself and any other teacher as examples, he says, for your sake, to explain how God views those who serve him. God's opinion that matters. The spiritual mind, the way you ought to be looking at these things. Why? So you can learn what matters to God and how God views these things. Whether you're the servant or you're the one learning as under those servants, as you can see, God has his own standards of measuring those things that are important. Paul says, so you, you think you're so superior? So proud of yourself, are you? Well, tell me, what do you have that God didn't give you? And what could you do with the truth without the spirit of God? All you have is what God's given to you. How can anyone boast in themselves? Romans 12, verse 3 says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith. See, Paul is saying here, you want to have the right measurement of those who serve? Well, they're under rowers. They're, they're servants, galley slaves, each with their own oar, working in the same direction for the same purpose. We're servants, Managers of what God's entrusted to us. We're to be motivated by the things that bring pleasure to God. To seek to be God-pleasers rather than man-pleasers. So that we might do all that we do for his glory and his glory alone. I often pray when I come in on Sunday morning. As God, somehow, I don't know how you're going to do this because I know me. But I want you to bring glory to your name today. So that tonight, when I go to sleep, and I look back on the day, and I can say, God, you've been glorified. You have been glorified. Not Doug Snow. Not any other servant. But that God is glorified. And I tell you, I pray that for this church. That this church lives to bring glory to him. That's our business. Pray for Ryan as he gets ready to take this role. That God would remind him every day that his sole purpose in life is not to bring himself, make a name for himself, 
but to bring glory to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Amen. You can clap for that. That's why we're here, to bring glory to him so that he shines, so that his name is exalted. What's tragic is what I see so much in the American church is rips my heart apart. Some years ago, three of the most largest attended megachurches in America got together and they made this their boast. They were questioned, how did your churches become so popular and so successful? What they meant by that question, well, how in the world did you become so great in this world? And what is the secret of your success? And this was their answer to a degree. Translated, well, we went out into the neighborhoods and we took surveys to find out what the people were wanting in a church. And we wanted to know what kept them from church and what it would take to get them to church. And so we took the surveys and built ministries that accommodate their desires and their felt needs of the people. They didn't want to leave the church feeling bad about themselves, so we only fed them service or messages that made them feel bolstered in their self-esteem. They wanted entertainment, so we entertained them. They wanted technology, so we gave them the finest and the best. They didn't want to feel guilty, so we left out those parts that would make them feel guilty. We didn't talk about sin. We didn't talk about judgment. We didn't talk about repentance. If you do speak about the Bible, we would select things that would only accommodate the palates and the appetites of the people. In other words, what they have become is democratic churches. Churches by the people and for the people. That is never what God designed for his church. The attitude was, well, if we build it, they'll come. We just build it. You see, what I think, it's just not a matter of getting people into a church. The question is what you're going to give to them when they get into the church. Will they leave better off spiritually? Will they have grown? Will they have matured? Will they have been drawn to Jesus? Because in my mind, I see too many things that go just the opposite. And it's breaking my heart. Because the truth is today, we can offer the greatest of technologies, we can offer the strategies of unredeemed men with all the smoke and with all the mirrors. Professional musicians and guaranteed to draw the attention of the masses, but we can end up at the end of the day. Nothing more than carnal, shallow people being fed with their carnal desires with cheap grace, a mile wide and a fraction of an inch deep. I read this wonderful quote from Leonard Ravenhill, who was a revival preacher. About 20 years ago, he passed away, but he writes this. Isn't it staggering when you think that in one sermon on the day of Pentecost produced 3,000 Christian people? And we had some cities yesterday where 3,000 sermons were preached and nobody was saved. And it doesn't even phase us. The church used to be a lightning bolt. Now it's a cruise ship. We're not marching to Zion. We're now sailing there with ease. In the apostolic church, it says that they were all amazed. And now in our churches, everyone wants to be amused. The church began in the upper room with a bunch of men agonizing. And it's ended in the, up, in the supper room with a bunch of people organizing. 
we mistake rattle for revival, commotion for creation, and action for unction. Look, I think this is a critical hour in history, the most critical hour in history. The Middle East is ready to blow up. The prestige of this nation we love has gone down. And someone said, we live in a theater of the absurd. When did you last tiptoe out of the sanctuary when you dare not say a word? The church has to rediscover two things. One is the majesty and the holiness of God, and the other is the sinfulness of man. Paul is saying here, the kingdom of God cannot be a democracy. It cannot be a religion by the people, for the people. It has to be a theocracy where God is the one governing and setting the agenda for his church. See, these carnal Corinthians, they were missing these things and they were found in a carnal condition and they were striving with their own ambitions and they become foolish in God's sight. May I ask you today, what are your motivations? Who are you serving? Not just who you're serving, but why are you serving? If you're serving. And who is it in your life you seek to please? Is it one another? Is it me? Or is your desire today, I just want to please him? Because when we grow up, this is going to be our desire. Him. Bring him glory. That's the mature Christian. I'm here to shine the light of Jesus. Let's pray.